My name is Luke Crane. I am the head of games design and technology here at Kickstarter. I am Anya Combs. I'm the director of games here at Kickstarter. And I'm Trin Digital Outreach, and this is the Kickstarter Games Podcast. Each month, Luke, Anya, and I will collect recordings on the road at shows, or at our Brooklyn headquarters, or at my outpost in Chicago. We meet super creative people who make games on our travels, and we get to see and hear about all kinds of weird, sometimes underground stuff in the games industry. And this podcast is our way to share what we see with you. Today, we'll have some highlights from Gen Con, an interview with incredible independent creator Jordan Draper, and right now, a brief discussion about all of that with me, Anya, and Luke, so you can get to know us just a little bit better. How was Gen Con? You both had very different experiences of it, Luke, as um, somebody who's like also creating games, and like Anya, uh, as somebody who had to drag her ass to Indiana. I was supposed to get in the day before Gen Con. Except as people were boarding the flight, they canceled the flight. Oh, right. <laughs> that, was, that was a little bit strange. So I ended right. up getting in really, really late. So I kind of missed all of the, the Zine Quest um, meetup, except for like the last five minutes, which I'm still pretty bummed about. The rest of Gen Con was really interesting. That was my second time ever going to Gen Con. And my initiative was, quote, have fun. Um, which ended up stressing me out even more because I was like, but I need a task to complete. <laughs> and having fun was like too nebulous of a task. So I took it too far and then decided to just jump in fountains as my fun. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, which resulted in your near death by cold or something, right? Didn't you get horribly sick? I did get sick. I wasn't like horribly sick, no. but, and I don't think that's what it was. I think it was just like nerds don't wash their hands. There's no way that the fountain is what did it. No, I was in my element. I felt at home. Yeah. Gen Con got me this year too. Maybe it was, the, yeah. maybe that was the year of Gen Con. You know, it was Nick. It was Nick Nazaro that got me sick. No, I didn't touch Nick. I would never touch Nick. <laughs> Pretty good policy. I got a skin infection from Gen Con this year. What? Yeah. Yeah. It was not good. I had to go get antibiotics there. It was bad. At Indianapolis? Yep. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't have an on-site, like, infirmary or clinic at Gen Con. It just seems like a massive oversight. Yeah. Like, it's just a Petri dish. And every year you hear about somebody getting really sick. Yeah. And it just seems like having somebody there who can just be like, hip, here's some antibiotics. Like, like a school nurse. Yeah, yeah. yeah you would yeah. also think that, like, there would at least be, like, a, I guess maybe this is your point, like, even the attendees, like, I'm sure someone's a doctor. <laughs> Yeah, but doctors don't usually carry a stash of antibiotics on them. Or any, honestly, any doctor that's carrying a stash of medicine on them, you should probably distrust them. Um, well, that's a drug dealer. <laughs> Gen Con this year was a, was fine. It was a good one. Tell me about the awards uh, that Zine Quazines won at Gen Con. Someone had just shown me the Mothership RPG, and I was like, yeah, we got to check this out. We got to go over there. And so we walked over to their booth, and I didn't realize that I also knew them already, that, you know, there's another... You know, a team that had done a successful Kickstarter project in the past. And so uh, we were chatting and, you know, I was like, oh, I want to get a set of the zines. And I looked down and I saw that they had an award on their table next to the zines. And I was like, wait, wait, what happened? Did you just win this any? Did you win? Gen Con holds a an award show every year on the Friday night of the show. And they give out awards for best adventure, best art, best cover art best game oh best monster that's a new one best but also like best podcast best production values and they were like oh yeah yeah we won and i was like what the i was so psyched taking pictures and congratulating them i was so so excited to you know have a project that was a part of zine quest go on to uh yeah to win an any at gen con um super fun have you have you played the goose game, Trin? Me and Connell are playing it together. I'm telling him what to do, and he's uh, playing it on the Switch. And I'm like, move the rake, uh, put put everybody inside of the garage and close it. And it's been so much fun. And the sound of the feet of the goose on the ground is the best thing I've ever heard because it's like, flap flap or flap flap or flap, and it's the best. Okay, does that answer your question? That's a good answer, Anya. Anya is the goose. <laughs> 
That's true. <laughs> yeah, Anya's been talking about Untitled Goose Game since I started working at Kickstarter. I've been obsessed with this game for two years. I mean, you can see on my laptop, like, I have the stickers. You were into the goose before the goose was cool, like, in a real way. I don't think I've ever seen Anya more happy <laughs> than when she was playing Untitled Goose Game. Um, oh, at a... Um, at Amaze. Amaze, yeah. yeah. I just love everything about it. And also, like... House House as a team, the, the game that they made before this was um, Push Me, Pull Me, which is also sort of an exploration on like so many different things. They're just a great team. I'm, I'm a huge fan of them. This is, this is dumb, but uh, I've been in games 11 years and I've never made a game. I've never designed a game. I've, I don't do the creative side, but the thing that I'm proud to say that I've had a weird capability of doing is going to conferences, seeing seeing games at their sort of beginning state and just being able to look at stuff and say, like, that's going to be something. That's going to be huge. That's going to take over. And Goose Game was, like, probably the biggest one for me two years ago. I was like, oh, yeah, this is going to take over. And as soon as it's launched, everyone's going to know about this game. I mean, that makes sense. Just, like, based on your background and, like, what you know about the games industry, you would be able to figure that out. It was, like, my first day at Kickstarter, and you had, like, a Goose button, and I was like, excuse me? And you were like, yes, the goose. It's a big deal, Trent. This is going to be huge. The goose is going to be huge. The goose is on the loose. Am I considering getting a goose tattoo? Yes. Should you get a goose tattoo? Absolutely. Honking, flapping, swimming. I haven't decided yet. Dragging a rake. Dragging a rake. I'm thinking about the goose dragging a rake, quite honestly, <laughs> just because rake in the lake is the funniest thing that I've ever heard. Rake in the lake is is like a personal motto at this point. Yeah. Is that your honk sona? Yeah. How about you, Luke? Do you have a honk sona, or do we need to assign you one? <laughs> a honk sona. What? Wait, Luke texted me at like 11:30 the other night, and all it said, I think, was how do you how do you break the broom or something like that? Yeah. And I was like. <laughs> fuck is he taught and then i was like oh he's playing goose game i was very very confused uh, yeah i was yeah i was texting a lot of people being like <laughs> goose texts uh i spent probably a half an hour stealing <laughs> stealing the goddamn soccer ball from that wretched child and geese are very bad at moving soccer balls let me tell you and getting that soccer ball all the way out back into that dude's yard and then getting him to throw the soccer ball into the other yard and then yeah. then finding it because it, then it rolls downhill and it was hiding behind something and finding it and pushing it into the other yard and then the other yard is on a hill so then trying to negotiate the terrible fucking physics of, of a goose trying to push a soccer ball up a hill and into a child's goal all to score a, an achievement in that game i spent at least a half an hour doing that that's all part of it man that's all part of the magic that is the goose yeah i love a video game that is both an excellent experience but also just like a really fun toy press button to honk is like one of the greatest features that you could have in a game i was playing it last night brian was watching the world series and i just had the switch on like kind of a low setting in terms of volume and i was because again i am the goose i just kept honking yeah. until he would look at me and then i would stop honking <laughs> and i would keep honking he was like oh my god can you stop i spent about 30 minutes just terrorizing my husband <laughs> of just being the goose honking while he was trying to watch sports ball <laughs> yeah the simplicity of the like mechanism interaction right flap honk duck uh run like re really simple but very evocative really like great animation um that you know is, but Oh, the goose butt is my favorite thing in the world. When Watching it, that little waddle. And when it ruffles its feathers a little oh, bit. Yeah. It's so cute. <laughs> it's really good. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, it's a physics puzzler, but the limitations that they've added onto it, like that, you know, they built into it with, in terms of the goose, it's just genius. It's, it's really fun. It's a fun, simple, funny game. And that allows for a little bit of mayhem, um, a little bit of ambitiousness. I love chasing the kid around when I have the bottle in my mouth. <laughs> Just honking into the bottle, chasing the child. Oh, have you honked in the box? No. Like what, when you're being carried in the box? Sorry, spoiler. Oh my God. It absolutely, <laughs> if you wish to create even more havoc and mayhem and then just party out as they react but these, oh, these so ignorant funny. humans. Yeah. Highly recommended honking in the box. I think about this stuff a lot where like we can get a little bit isolated in terms of like indie games right like on not just kickstarter stuff but just indie games where i'm like 
oh, how come you don't know about this weird indie game? I'm wondering if, if people are going to dress up as the goose. I wanted to ask that. I was going to be like, so guys, next convention that's coming up, like the next one on my docket is PAX Unplugged, which I feel like there's probably not going to be a ton of goose cosplay. But like, I mean, I guarantee you there's going to be people walking around with like a red ribbon around their neck at the very least, like low-key goose cosplay. I'm going to MIGS, Montreal International Gaming Summit, uh, and, and MEGA, which is the extension of that, uh, in mid-November, and then also Unplugged. Yeah, I'll go to Metatopia in New Jersey. Mm. Um, it's a RPG playtesting event. So Those don't sound like places where we would find Goose cosplay, and uh, I think you should cancel and not go. I actually might see some Goose cosplay at, at maybe not at MIGS, but I would suspect at MEGA. It definitely feels kind of right in line with what uh, that conference is about. Well, I would I request that you report back on this very important piece of information in the games industry. So way back in February 2019, we at Kickstarter did ZineQuest. Here's Luke Crane to explain exactly what that means. So ZineQuest was this thing that the games team ran in February on Kickstarter, what we call a, uh, an initiative or a creative prompt, where we invited creators to launch zine uh, projects, uh, specifically focused on RPG-related materials. So either containing a complete game or a supplement to a game or a comic about a game or, or, or commentary on a game or whatever. Um, and yeah, we had about 100 projects launch, a little more than 100 projects launch, and I think like 96 of them were successful, which is... Uh, amazing. The idea behind these projects was to create kind of a uh, a cool frame, like something interesting and fun for people to plug their ideas into, but also a small ask, something that wasn't going to require, you know, a year or two years of work, something that you could turn around in a few months. So the following Gen Con, which is a big tabletop convention in Indianapolis, we gathered a few of our faves. So Marie Enger of Casketland, Sam Roberts of Indiecade, and a bunch of other stuff that I'll let him talk about. John Peterson, who is an RPG historian. What? Anyway, he's got some cool stories. We got everybody together to talk to, meet up with any zine questers at Gen Con. They wanted to hang out for a discussion and trade zines. Here are some highlights from that conversation. <laughs> you made a mistake. <laughs> like no, I'm keeping What are they? I want some. Oh, so this is the experience system I'll for trade. my game. You have to, like, check off these little things. Uh, I should be taking uh, paint or something. What? What did you lay this out in? Uh, InDesign. Creators shared zines and roasted one another mercilessly. Also, this is my, this, yeah. my, my oh. zine. It's not a zine. <laughs> That's a I was like, this is a book. <laughs> book. Um, excuse me, Luke. That is a zine. I followed the rules. The- Matthew Gravelin of Mall Kids showed up. We were so excited to see him. And he told us a little bit about how zines helped him find his voice in games. Yeah, no, originally I am actually, uh, I dabbled in board game design. Um, I have a press your luck dice game on the Game Crafter. I've shopped games to publishers. And my feedback a lot of times was just like, yes, this is a mechanically sound game. It is not fun. So I struggled with it for a long time and then I took a break from it. And... I think I dabbled a little bit, but the first break was I wrote a playset for Weave. And it was just like, oh, I'm supposed to be over here doing role-playing games and storytelling games because those I could crack out. And it's just like, this just fell out, right? Like, I didn't, I didn't have to do anything. This is just like how my brain works and what I want to do. And everyone was just like, and this is fun and engaging. We want to do this. And that never happened whenever I, whenever I made a board game prototype. He's, like, doing pretty well now, you guys. But So now I have a Weave playset. I have Mall Kids. I wrote the micro-expansion for Mall Kids. I have another... I got, like, so much paper to hand out. I have this, like... <laughs> uh, I wrote this. This is a solo... There's not an, a word for it. I call it a contemplative game for one. Because it's not really a storytelling game. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a... I'm, I'm hoping to meet them later at the Mall Kids meetup, but there's this group that has done a couple live streams of it. Uh, they did an English live stream of it. The first stream, the live stream of Mall Kids, was in uh, Portuguese. That's so Someone in Portugal was live streaming Mall Kids, which was just like, this is great. I have no idea what they're doing. Perhaps you might follow in his footsteps. This was accessible. I knew I could finish this. I knew I could deliver this. That was where I was with this. It's right. Like, I was like, I wanted to put something out to just like get it done. Yeah. Right. I think and that is very valuable. Like people <laughs> need to complete a thing yeah. as part of their path. After zine trading, we turn to our panelists. Marie Enger told us about her inspiration for creating Casket I'm interested in, in creating a world that's really, really hostile. 
even in my books. Like I, I really aim to create some place that is very, very bad. And so I started playing D&D with a friend of mine because we were all broke as shit about six years ago, right after college. And we would go over once a week and we'd play and he had created this very, very, it was like just when 5e had come out and we were just all playing, we, he had borrowed his brother's books because we couldn't afford to get them. But it was a really, really cheap way for all of us to hang out and have a good time. And so I liked that aspect of it. And then, you know, the game fell apart because they do. And I didn't think anything of it and didn't really miss it. And then a friend of mine was like, hey, I want to hang out more and you're always working. So why don't you just come to my group D&D night whenever you can on Mondays? I'm running a long form campaign, but they're all one shot. So, so you can kind of jump in whenever you like, but it's a super, super old system. And a lot of it's supplemented with zines. And so he had a system where you couldn't roll to pick what your character was. You had to roll for it. And so I rolled and I got a vat born. And so after that, I had to roll to see like what my attributes were, how much I remembered, what my hit points were, anything. I just had to roll randomly. And I got a really fucking shitty character. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they don't remember who they are, what they've been, because they've been alive for over a hundred years. And so they're just kind of this very, very trusting, moronic vat spawn. Um, that has no bones, so they can crumple up and hide, but they also have only one hit point, so they have to hide. And their eyes are on stalks that can shoot out of their head. It's super weird, and, and one of the things that they like to do is just add on parts of dead things, so they're always collecting like whatever's left behind. And I love that, because that's not a character I would have chosen on my own at all. And so after that game, having like the, the just the ease of having it once a week, whenever I wanted, was great. Then a couple friends of mine wanted to play D&D, and I was the only one who had played before. I was not super excited to play that in that style, but Hi. they... Oh, hey, are you here John. for the Zine Quest? Are you John? Yeah, that's John, that's John Suddenly a John Peterson oh, appeared. Do you want to sit, sit at the table? We're sitting all in a group. Here. Yeah. I have a chair right here. Oh. I woke up in Stockholm this morning. Oh, no. <laughs> well, that was a nightmare. Anyway, back to Marie and her nightmare D&D group. Oh, yeah. I started running this game for them. And they weren't interested in rules. They weren't interested in having conflict. They were just interested in playing their characters. And so I ran a campaign for two years. And towards the end, I fucking hated it. It was miserable. <laughs> it was just, there was so much expectation. And, you know, the dynamics of a group changes over time. And there had been a huge fight in this group. And people were being unreasonable. And by the end, you know, we just had our big finish this past April. I was so miserable. I wanted to cry. Like, it was something that I had built that had originally brought a lot of joy, but towards the end was just causing me a lot of stress. And it was really hard to have a connection to characters as a DM because your whole goal is to make them struggle or fight or learn or grow. And so I always felt just very on the outs. And it just, I mean, the dynamics of a friend group falling apart over two years is really hard, too. Mm -hmm. And so... Before that, you know, I had kind of known that this group was ending and that I was just stressed out by this game. And so I wanted to create a system that wasn't so long form. And so I wanted to make sure that if I wanted to play a game with friends, I could play it in four to six hours. You know, hopefully a, a relationship won't fall apart at that point. <laughs> and so I also wanted to play a game that wasn't about leveling up or getting better. It was just about kind of surviving. And I had run Cascaland as like a Halloween game for a couple comic book shops in St. Louis a few years back. And then I had run a, a version of it at Disney. And it was just the easiest one to do. Um, it fit really well for black and white. I really like drawing Loam. I had a lot of fun doing Loam stuff. So Loam is a character in Casket Land called the Wrapped Madman. He's got uh, a poncho and a, a little back book. His brittle little fingers. Anyway, yeah, knowing Marie, that scans. And it was really fun to make. It was stressful because I didn't know how it would do, but... I really like it. You made it so fast, I feel like, too. Well, that's interesting. Well, the game doubled. Like, that was the big thing. And so we had a couple backers get kind of kind of nasty about that, which I understand. But, you know, I thought it was going to make maybe, I think, $2,500 is what I said I wanted. And it made so much more. Casketland received $21,722 in pledges with 1,399 backers. So the game just kept doubling and getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And I thought it would just be a one shot. But now I'm doing another campaign for it. And it was just very unexpected. Um, and we redid all the rules and, you know, then people yelled at me about the rules. And so we redid them again. And yeah, it's been really interesting. I, this is not where I thought I'd be at the beginning of the year by a long shot. It's, it's very strange. It was very interesting to see where I fit in in different communities because the comics community, especially the horror comics community, which is what I do, 
is very, very different than the gaming community. Yes. And so it was a really, really weird shift from having a community that if they didn't like me, they would tell me to my face to a community that was for the most part, really great and awesome. But man, that like 2% of people were just bad. <laughs> the and internet. I know. I know what I hadn't games. It was games. so weird for me. And like, I had some people offering to help fix because of my lady brain and I definitely couldn't handle a weird old game. And so that was a little bit weird too, because that was also not something I had experienced in comics, ironically, because I do alt comics. So I never had a problem. People just always let me do what I was doing. So it was really different, and I learned a lot. And I think like there was a lot of negative experience, but there was a lot more positive. Good. So I'm excited to do more. Everybody start being nice to Marie, because we need to keep her in the games industry. We are keeping Marie. Really excited to do more. You ended up with like a really beautiful idea. Yeah, that sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't think people would like it, but it's super weird. Like People have been coming up all day and telling me that they backed it, and they were really excited to meet me. And I was like... I'm sorry, I'm not like some sort of somber Western person. <laughs> I'm really excited, and and uh, yeah, it's it's been it's so it's so different. So cool. You may it's want to get yourself a sheriff's badge for them. Yeah. Oh, man, I'm a grave digger all the way. <laughs> but then, don't you need a second grave digger? Yeah, you're gonna make me another grave digger. Sure. Get me an outfit. I'm there. Sam I know. Roberts, an- another panelist on this panel that this is. I guess I have. <laughs> have a zine called Football Fantasy, um, and it is just let's take your D and D characters that you have lying around and make some rules so that you can use whatever your tabletop game is and have fantasy gridiron football. <laughs> Play some Blood Bowl in your tabletop RPGs. Basically, is the idea. Oh my god! Um, yeah, I love football. I love uh, tabletop RPGs and zines. I've been hand making tabletop RPG content for a really long time. Also, I teach game design at USC. Um, I teach a tabletop role playing games class, and so much of what we do broadly, though, there in teaching students is like we try and give them a, a big survey and a lot of basic skills, and also like a chance to find something they get crazy excited about and go weird and deep on right and then zines there were still zines when i was in high school lots of people were making them and they were crazy people who got really excited about something and went really weird and deep on it and i love that so much early tabletop rpg content is somebody like got really excited about this game like find what's empty and like make things that go there and let people be excited about it and i i love zines and i teach some zine like things in my class because it's like it's just this idea it's like what's a cool thing and like you don't even need to do all the heavy game lifting work, right? Somebody's done a bunch of that. You can reference other games. If you're making a zine for a tabletop audience, they know some basics about rolling dice and narrating the results. And you can sort of just be like, so here's this like particular experience for you. Uh, and certainly some of these zines go well beyond that. I heard a bunch of you talk about usability and like making sure that a random person could pick this up and have a really nice slice specific game, uh, which is a good thing to do as a game designer. Everyone strap in because Sam Roberts is about to explain the zine that he made to us. And in the process, he'll take us on a ride. Because like games are our content and you have to make all these little detailed pieces that then people like fall in love with and become the thing that they love about your game and start to play with and move around, you know, and it's like for Casketland, that's part of that content is just these drawings. But you still have to make it. It has to be like in world and in theme and support your mechanics yeah. and get towards what you're trying to do. And that stuff has to be iterated. Mm-hmm. People say, No, that doesn't do it, or you show it to people and they're like, Oh, that makes me feel so happy and smiling yeah. and you're like, That's not gonna work for my <laughs> horror. Western campaign, so maybe I need to do something about that, right? And so I've been I've been working on my systems. You know, I had these three pillars. I was like, there's a turn by turn, uber complex. If you are like interested in like football simulation with fireball spells, I've got a framework for that. And then I've got a much faster like rule system for like, oh, you want something that feels like a football game that just takes D and D stats as input. But then I was like, but then I. The third part of my zine was always going to be teams and people on those teams and things that they're doing. And uh, it's just a, all of that has taken a way longer to produce at a level where I am even pleased a little bit with what it looks like. It's partially your fault because... Sam points squarely into the face of Kickstarter head of games, Luke Crane. Uh, and so that is that is where I am sitting with it right now. But I just I put out a playtest of the fast type rules to my backers, so hopefully some of them will play with that and let me know if that feels like a football game. I feel pretty good about the simulation. Uh, I mean, it's interesting. I, I figured out how 
how to make play choice interesting. And then it turns out it is just football and D and D are both about like where people are on a grid. So um, yes. <laughs> uh, miniatures based D and D at least. Um, yeah. And so that works. And uh, you can just like build really cumbersome math equations that are like, oh, <laughs> you throw it here, and depending on how many people there are there, you know, no. this is not for you. No, no, thank you. Um, it is for about a hundred people. They all luckily found me <laughs> back the scene. I'll play it. I just don't want to come up with those rules. Damn, your There's brain must be a crazy place. We calm the room down, and Luke takes the floor. This is my friend John, everybody. Uh, John is a historian, RPG historian in particular, and uh, has written a few books that are really remarkable. Yeah. He uh, wrote a book called Playing at the World, which is a history of uh, the role-playing game hobby was starting from war games, so Kriegspiel war games in particular, um, and moving up through the invention of D&D and uh, the aftermath therein. Um, and it is an incredible, it's a thriller. It's, uh-huh. a, it's a 700 rollicking pages. Um, <laughs> it is 700 pages, uh-huh. and I couldn't put it down once I started it. And uh, r- r- most recent work, uh, Art and Arcana, the uh, visual history of d and uh, which is a tome uh, that contains a lot of uh, the primordial art uh, around d and and some of the Latter-day stuff as well. I just got off a plane from Europe, and so I'm on another planet. <laughs> so, poor sweet John Peterson gives us his historical perspective on zines and games. These things started because, you know, after D&D came out, there's kind of this, this, you know, big bang, right, of creativity with people going in all these different directions. And the Los Angeles fans, um, including Lee Gold, who was the editor of Alarms and Excursions, they, they immediately knew they needed to have a, a comments to discuss these things. And there was no innerbots, there were no forums, really, this, this was it. And so, you know, people would make these micro-contributions to these issues of alarms and excursions. And basically what it was as a zine, it was, it was just a collation of a bunch of submissions that all the people who participated in the zine contributed. Zines to D&D in the 70s are just, they're, they're mods, right? It's like these days a kid loves a game, and then if they can, they just make a level for it by doing a mod. And like, in the 70s, a person found tabletop Dungeons and Dragons and fell in love with it many, many times. I was like, I'm going to make I'm going to make my own content. By the name of John Freeman. Freeman said that D&D wasn't so much a game as it was a design a game kit. Mm-hmm. And it, the D&D rules acknowledge this. I mean, they say, you know, that this is, they are just a framework to design a game of as much simplicity or complexity as you desire. And that they, they never aspired to be anything more than just guidelines around that. When you said you, you just kind of messed around with this stuff and never published, the the irony of that is, of course, the only differentiation between somebody who just messed around like and a real official designer is the audacity to just publish it as a design and say, this is my game. That's yeah. it. That, that was all that was missing. Mm-hmm. That's what's so great about a project like this, mm-hmm. like the Zine Quest project, right? Is mm-hmm. like it, it just encourages people to step up and have that audacity to be like, my stuff's a design. Here it is. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, we had a great time in exotic Indianapolis list together. I'd like to close this with John Peterson. We figured, you know, while we have an RPG historian in the room, we might as well ask, got any good stories about historical RPGs? So I, I wrote this piece that came out on December 15th of 2018, because that was the 75th anniversary of a day in occupied Paris, December 15th of 1943, that these three amateur gamers, um, put out this handwritten set of war game rules in the darkest hour of the occupation. This was a time when it was really unclear what the fate of France was going to be. Um, and I had found this this document. I, I bought a lot from a guy in England, and he just kind of threw this in and was like, I don't really know what this is, but it, maybe you'll think it's interesting. And I probably had it for eight or nine years, and it, it just started to kind of bother me lately? Like, what actually was that? So I spent a huge chunk of last year actually writing this piece about who the, who these people were. I managed to find who these people were. They had this, like, club that was gaming in Paris and it and there was all this during tension the between during the occupation. Oh um, and, you know, these these this club, some of their, obviously, many of them, they were young then in Paris, had to fight. Some had already been prisoners of war. Some of the people in their miniature collecting society even were POWs who formed collecting societies in the prison camps in in germany and would like come back and you know and they're so it was really a story about who who these people were and kind of what happened to their rules and it turns out their rules um 
had, had a long shelf life, actually went through several iterations that followed and were available in English translation in the 1960s. And that's, that's what I love. I love to find an artifact like that. It, that just once once you really think about it, you're like, there must be a story here. Like, who were these people, and like, what were they doing? Like, because that's not what I would have been doing. <laughs> Great news, everyone! If you were inspired by this, we are doing Zine Quest too. So start getting your group together, an illustrator, figure out where you're going to print things, all that stuff, so you can launch your Zine on February second, twenty twenty, two two twenty twenty. We are asking that people run two week campaigns to keep up this two thing that we're doing Zine Quest two. 2-2-2020. So keep your project small, make it happen, and then maybe launch another one after that first one's done. Who knows? Or take a nap. It'll be February. It'll be very dark. In our closing segment, Luke and Anya interviewed our friend and previous Kickstarter creator in residence, Jordan Draper. Hi, I'm Jordan. I got here because I drank a magical drink out of a vending machine in Japan and then teleported immediately. I feel like that has to be some kind of anime reference. Anyway, it was less of an interview and more they pulled up his entire history on the back end of Kickstarter and rifled through his data. I mean, reflected on his 10 campaigns from his humble beginnings running an Etsy shop for his handmade jewelry. Jordan's game development journey has had successes, failures at wrong turns. And now, in something they've never done before, and maybe will never do again, here's Anya Combs and Luke Crane interviewing guest Jordan Draper in Start Failing, everyone. Uh, where's Wikipedia? <laughs> oh, I'm filled with questions. <laughs> uh, well, me too, honestly. That's what keeps me going. That's what gets me up in the morning. <laughs> Uh, okay, Jordan, you just closed out a project. This was my 10th project on Kickstarter, and it was a reprint for the game that sort of launched me into being able to run a sustainable business making games uh, called Import-Export. So this was a reprint of that with upgraded components and special things that I could only afford to make by running it as a Kickstarter project where I didn't have to make extra copies and worry about distribution and retail pricing and all the things that come from making games that you don't want to think about, but you have to think about. So I made a very nice, pristine, expensive version of the game that has some new expansions and things uh, and got to have like a good brainstorming session to make some of the content with the backers and people that like what I'm doing. I've hit the pinnacle of everything and it was great. You hit the pinnacle of everything. What does that mean? There's like a lot of pressure and stuff that happens running Kickstarters, and I finally made it to a point where it was just like relaxing, and I got to talk to people and have a good time and didn't worry about the stresses of running a Kickstarter. Felt good. Would you say that with this 10th project, it you are in a space now where instead of it being like anxiety-inducing and scary, running a Kickstarter project is actually kind of fun? Yeah. I mean, there's always a lot of fun that comes out of them, but usually it's like a mixed bag of worrying about pressures and you have to worry about money and doing all this stuff and making it work and delivering it. But this one felt completely relaxed because I could go a little bit more of an artistic direction. Like my updates were like weird virtual renderings that I did of some of the components in like weird ways. So I like told stories in my updates through stuff like this, which I never would have normally done because I always felt like pressure. I need to look professional, but it was great. Tenth project. What was your first project? My very first project was a D&T design and technology project for some wallets that I designed, which were laser cut. And then I had rivets to put them together and they were just like really thin. And you could put cash inside and put cards on the two outsides. And it was just a folded piece. And I got like $2,300 out of my $10,000 goal to get a laser cutter in the first two days. And then no more funding came in and I thought, oh no. I don't know what to do, so I just stopped doing anything and my project failed. Woo! Laser-cut minimalist leather wallet that will outlast your grandchildren. I mean, grandchildren do wear out pretty quickly these days, honestly. <laughs> Thanks. I, I mean, just... I should have consulted with you first. You're yeah. right, Luke. The <laughs> world is ending, so it's fine. Yeah. Wallets. So this you uh, ran this in uh, July of 2013, and around that time, and a few years on either side of that time, wallets were a thing on Kickstarter. Yeah. And there are a lot of minimalist wallets. What made... Y- you want to jump into the minimalist wallet world i had always wanted to get a good wallet and i designed that like two years before this in like 2011 when i saw a bunch of projects on kickstarter for wallets i was like oh 
time for my wallet design to shine in the world. I don't know. I just, I liked minimal design and I wanted to explore it within products. And at the time I was still mainly a musician and just kind of doing this on the side. It was a nice way for me to try to utilize the platform. I just really have, have a question. Um, it's really burning up hole maybe in, in my your, in my pocket um do you have one of the wallets yeah are you using it today right now i mean i did for like five years but i don't use it anymore wait so did the wallet not outlast the grandchildren then? it did it's still around but japan showed me a better way <laughs> Japan, <showed> you- <laughs> as they uh, tend to do yeah mm-hmm. i see well, what's the better way that you learned it's just like a letter-sized u.s letter-sized the, the tiny envelopes right and then it has a little flap that folds in and it's got like everything, little compartments in there. It's better to have a little wide wallet that you can fit all your bills and everything in without folding them. Just keep it clean. But you can't stick that in the pocket of your tight jeans. Oh, you can. You turn it sideways and stuff it in and it just sticks out of your pocket a little bit. Wow. If we've done it, Japan's done it better. That's my tagline when I go to sleep. I say that every night. <laughs> <laughs> Look, this is a piece of history. You are a piece of Kickstarter history. Uh, minimal leather wallets from Clegg's and Serly. What's a Clegg's and Serly? It sounds like a, a sailing company, an old sailing company. And I was like, that, that's got a nice ring. And my sister made a little cursive custom font for it. Oh, that's uh, really sweet. And I was like, brand born. I ran really hard. So Jordan Draper, Clegg Sincerely, was it was an attempt at launching a brand, a lifestyle brand. A lifestyle brand, that's right. Mm-hmm. It was going to grow into more things. You were unsuccessful. At the time, was it like was it an emotional experience? Were you demoralized? Uh, were you... Uh, I was like a little demoralized, but I was running an Etsy store at the time, uh, full-time. That's like my first business without having to work doing anything else. So I was a little distracted. I didn't care like that much. I just thought, hmm, maybe Kickstarter is not as easy as I thought it would be. And then it took me a few years to come back and try again. Two two years, it looks like. It took you uh, from in 2015. Mm-hmm. So you weren't like kicking a can down the road being like, oh, Kickstarter sucks. It's an infant platform. Or, no, or, definitely not that. I think I just... <laughs> I think I just uh, underestimated how much marketing and like uh, growth I needed with a community for a product I was making. I had products on Etsy that were doing really well, but they weren't related to this lifestyle thing. And I thought it would be just as easy to use a platform that has an audience on already and just like tap into them. I could have set a lower goal and not tried to buy a $10,000 laser cutter hmm. off the bat, and I would have been successful. How old were you? I think I was 20, 24, 25. Did any of the backers from old Clegg's and Sarley stay with you as you move forward into other projects? My friends and family did that I asked, but I have no idea if the other people did or not. Mm. Because after I switched to games, it was like a different audience, so Mm. I didn't Mm. try to get the same targets. Your first game was Rocky Shores? Oh, yeah. Right. This is why I ran 10 projects. I'm forgetting about some of them. (laughs) Which I reviewed and approved. Cool. Um, back in 2015. That became a real digital game, too, on the App Store. It was a mobile mobile yeah. game? Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, do you remember the project? Can you tell us a little bit about the project? This was under sure. your other label, Dark Flight Games. Yeah, so this was a, a partnership with my friend Nick Halper. He's a programmer, and he does neural implant hardware and software development. So he did the a lot of the back-end coding. We made it in Game Maker, and then I did all the art assets and kind of the, the overall game design and creative direction Hmm. and so it's like an arcade shooter where you're on a a seashore and you tap to move your character back and forth and then you have to aim to shoot by tapping up in the sky and there's like a big delay so it's it's an unintuitive arcade shooting game we thought it would be easy to jump into the mobile platform as well right which is way harder than getting into physical games i think (laughs) Uh, was your project successful i think so i'm pretty sure it was successful i can't remember anymore No, it wasn't. It was not successful. (laughs) Four backers, $15. So you had some real generous backers in there. We did. One of those was my mom, I know, for sure. Mm -hmm. That's cool. My mom's never backed any of my projects. Well, I got one up on you then, Luke. You have more than one. My mom backed my project. Well, see, wow, both of you just... Get with it, Mama Crane. Get with it. (laughs) Yeah. But also my husband backed my project to make sure that we ended at like (laughs) $10,169. 
Nice. <laughs> yes. Anya's got one up on both of us. Yeah. <laughs> so this is your second project now, and this one went maybe not as smoothly as the first one. I remember when we did this one, we just said, let's just put it up and see what happens, and we're going to make the game anyway. So we put it up and didn't get the funding and then decided we were just going to stick through with it because we wanted to do the thing. Mm. The goal was to make the thing no matter what. Was this the first mobile game that you ever made? Yeah, this one was the first one, Then we made three after this, too. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. Are you a mobile games millionaire? We made, I think, $35 in profit. <laughs> that sounds about right. Wow. Yeah. Part of the bubble. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> but and you weren't discouraged with the process of, of putting something up and, and not getting any attention? I had entrepreneurial uh, beatings in the past that made it so I just stuck through with the goal. If that's a, a thing, I don't like. I don't get discouraged anymore, and I don't fear failure because after I became independent from having a job and having no money and just realizing I had to succeed in some way and like there's no other option, sticking through with that mindset made me realize that there's not really any such thing as failure. It's more just a lesson as to how to start improving things to get to success, whatever success means. I like that. Aren't the stakes higher when your actual livelihood is riding on projects like this? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there were times of anxiety and sadness for sure. But um, (laughs) in the end, like finishing the product and knowing that I had it and like knowing that some people were playing it, like some people were enjoying the thing that I did, even if it failed on Kickstarter or it failed, however you want to look at failure, like it didn't reach a certain audience size, whatever. Um, Just knowing that that first step had been achieved and then I can see all the other steps to keep growing it if I wanted to keep going with it. And I learned a lot in the process. Mm -hmm. So I consider that a a success for me. Then after Rocky Shores, uh, a year later, yeah, oh wow, and Rocky Shores, you're also seem to have run it over the holidays we didn't know what we were doing yeah (laughs) i mean if you're gonna do it wrong do it wrong you know (laughs) i mean we raised 15 dollars, so i don't know what you're all complaining about (laughs) uh is it you and nick helper still this one you mean yeah yeah this poison bottles this was our game we did together we designed it together and then i did all the artwork it's a completely handmade game so we got boxes and it handmade stamps and stamped all the edges of the boxes for all the info uh laser cut these rats and painted them uh and put them in the box with hand-folded instructions and cards that we got in a small batch from china basically nick wanted to go with a mass production model which would have made a lot of sense and made our lives easier but i i demanded that we do a small print run and make them by hand so we could gain an audience that was into something a little more unique and special because it seemed like there's a lot of games at the time that were similar in a lot of ways we wanted to stand out like going from wallets or taking a shot at a mobile game for me that almost seems like a kind of a natural progression but to go to a then a bespoke handmade small run tabletop game seems like a pretty big leap yeah, it's because I play a lot of games, a lot of tabletop games. Mm. Uh, that's the reason why we made it, because we both like tabletop games, and we kept talking about an idea for like two or three years, and then eventually we just sat down and went through everything for like six hours one night, we were in Nick's car and decided, well, we'll run a Kickstarter and see what happens. We designed the whole thing and made a prototype and put it together. And then I spent like a week making the art when I was okay at Illustrator, but like took this as a challenge to see if I could do all the art myself. I think I did pretty good job looks nice that was successful what we considered to be a big success which i think was like two and a half thousand or something 178 backers uh three thousand two hundred and fifty three dollars all right the one of the really interesting things here is you have about the same amount of updates as you have on this as the the wallet project i think you had seven or something on the wallet project and nine on this one but here now you get to feel the love of 35 comments uh, on this project which is more than your previous projects Mm -hmm. so maybe an, an indicator that uh you're piquing people's interest and this was reviewed by the games team and didn't get a negative comment so i'm in the right direction uh this one actually was was reviewed by the kickstarter robots by our we have a robot uh, a kickstarter called classy oh um and uh, that's classy with a k of course and classy helps us review projects what did classy say about my project classy looks clean looks great continue (laughs) looks classy thanks classy tip tip hat (laughs) monocle link drink poison bottle help classy feel sick (laughs) 
<laughs> Classy is a robot immune to poison. What's happening right now? <laughs> Quick question. That was Classy Joe. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, how long did it take you to fulfill this project? Uh, like a month? Two months at most? Whoa. Those handmade projects, we were like, let's get known for having quick turnaround times. So we, <laughs> we started fulfilling our, I fulfilled all the handmade projects I did, which was three in total, and within two months of all of them wow. finishing. Because why not? I don't have to wait for anything. Just <laughs> go to laser cutter, go to the stamping station. Did everything go smoothly on this project? Yeah, for the most part. People were like very, very positive I think it was because it was a small project, and they knew it was handmade, so they didn't have huge expectations that everything had to be exactly how they wanted it. I, I see Brienne Halper was the first comment on the project. Is that Nick's mom? That's Nick's wife. That's Aww. Nick's wife. Okay, well, she said, looks awesome. I'm excited to get the game as the first comment on the project. Nice. So, yeah. We didn't plant that at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good first comment. Thomas, that also a friend of yours? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. I don't know. Thomas Superbacker says, funding goal met. Congratulations. As your, your second comment. That positivity I was talking about. I'm right. sorry. Are you going to read all 35 comments? No, I was okay. just curious. Like, what were their first comments on uh, Jordan's projects? Okay. Okay. I can go back to the wallet project. Let's see. Comments um, three. Uh, and there's. I don't remember any of this. This is like literally a memory lane. Is this like, this is like opening your yearbook and seeing what people wrote in it. Yeah. So the first comment on your project ever or on any project was from Stephen. That's a friend of ours. How do we choose what color we want for the wallets? Asks Stephen. Um, A good question. A good question. Classy says rejected. Oh my God. What's interesting to me here is how rocky a start that you had. Very few indicators that you were on the right track, but yet you persisted. That narrative continues with your next project. Mm-hmm. My next project was Turin Market, my first solo experience game. Which is a small, almost like matchbox size game. So I guess it's like two matchbox. It's very Tokyo Game Market. Turn. It is very a very small box game. Yeah. yeah. Um, had you been to Tokyo Game Market when you uh, had made Turin Market? No, I had I had lived in Tokyo, but I had not been to Game Market yet. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So were you aware of that format of games? When like were you were you calling back to that format with Turin Market? No, actually, I wasn't super into the Japanese board game scene at the time. Hmm. I was busy going to Japanese language school five days a week and studying all the time uh, when I was there. I think I just liked small things and I traveled a lot, so this was like a no-brainer for me. Mm. I don't want to bring a big box, and if I have to prototype stuff and do whatever, then forget about it. Right. right. Laser-cut wooden pieces. Yes, they were engraved as well. So I made custom Scudo. This was in um, 17th century Italy. You're trying to monopolize certain types of fruits or goods to sell within the market. And so this is a blind auction bidding game. This was like my launch into getting known for making economic board games. It did okay. Now it's gotten a second printing, which just sold out as well. And I'm going into the third. But when the project launched, it was... I thought it was pretty successful. It wasn't enough for me to switch over careers or anything, but I made design this game when I was living in Turin, Italy. And so this started my journey into making games that I had world experience in and that I could do research from being in a location, which I kind of fell in love with and still do to this day. Mm. 98 backers, $3,268. So probably just enough to cover expenses on that project. Yeah, I think I ended up keeping... A thousand dollars or a little less or something because I handmade everything. So I just had to pay for material costs. But my time was worth a lot more than the money I kept, Mm. which is fine because I really enjoyed doing the project. But Mm. yeah, like I was saying, it wasn't enough for me to consider a career in games. That's for sure. (laughs) Right. All right. So then from there, you're back to another partnership project with Nick Helper, Made in America. Yes, this was, so we decided we were going to go to Essen, the first convention we had ever been to. Uh, A party game where you get to create absurd card combinations at the expense of American and pop culture icons. And there's uh, a dude in his underwear with an eagle head and a bandolier of 50 caliber machine gun rounds. Um, (laughs) This game, the idea is that you have nouns and adjectives and you're just making crazy combinations with Mm. them. It was like a very standard-esque party game, but we launched it during Essen because we didn't know what we were doing again. Mm -hmm. 
and everybody was busy being at Essen. This this game was a it was very interesting and funny, but it was like a very standard esque, almost Cards Against Humanity style party game. And party games are hard to sell on mm. Kickstarter, especially when you launch them during conventions and have no marketing. <laughs> <laughs> Why not at launch a project at SM? You're it's a hundred thousand of the most hardcore tabletop fans in the world. Mm-hmm. They're all there to shop for hot, fresh things that exist at the convention. And none of them are checking their emails or Kickstarter is what I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've, I've had projects running during certain conventions, but you have flyers and stuff there and tell people about it and have a reputation that you've built up with your audience. You can interact with them at the convention and tell them about it. Then maybe you'll be able to do that and have some success with it but mm-hmm. otherwise it's probably a bad idea to launch during holidays and conventions in the in the board game industry at least mm. so made in america doesn't do great we canceled the project on day two on day two you canceled the project mm-hmm. wow why you had this isn't the first time you've had a project kind of go slow or go south so <laughs> <laughs> true looking at all of kickstarter projects and doing all of our data crunching we we had come to the conclusion that if you don't do well in your first 48 hours then you're not going to make it which i would still say is true no no okay well it's possible but it does have a, a big effect on the curve of your project and the overall funding from my experience well, i'm glad that we're disagreeing about this actually because i'm sitting here as a creator and you're sitting there as creators and no staff you're, you're, it's like a tautology like if you right if you don't make money on one day you don't make as much money as you would have if you made money on that day like Yes, of course, but there's a reason why you run projects for 30 days and you run them for just two days. Just in terms of the myth that you have to fund in the first 48 hours, it's just demonstrably false. Keep in mind, if that was the case, we would tell everyone that just run your project for two days instead of 30. I'm not saying you have to fund in the first 48 hours, but if you pull in $20 the first 40 hours, your project listing is way down on Kickstarter. Uh, and it's a lot harder to gain traction and to make it work. You can still do it and get advertising and do all the stuff, mm-hmm. but it makes more sense to come back with a strong launch. For, that's That was our mindset. That's why we canceled it anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I didn't see this project because I was at Essen. Me too. I was also at Essen. <laughs> uh, which, ironically, I went to pitch import-export and turn market to publishers. Uh, and I pitched to probably eight publishers or something, both of the games, and gave out some copies and got some maybes. And then everybody eventually turned them down. And that's why I came back to Kickstarter again. Hmm. And I'm glad that I did. I'm very glad all those games did not get picked up now. Hmm. So turn market is successful. Jutaku... Uh, also successful, but again, these are these are really nice, modest successes. They're bespoke games, handmade components, 140 backers, $5,155. Biggest success yet. The biggest success yet. Reviewed by uh, Anya Combs. A- reviewed and approved for launch by Anya Combs. Thanks, Anya. You're welcome. Jutaku was the most... Well, it was the craziest concept I had put into anything so far. It's this weird-shaped pieces that are made out of laser-cut MDF wood that you put onto a tiny plot of land that you have on this card that represents a plot in Tokyo, and you have to try to put these pieces together and make a certain number of floors stacked on top of each other using an exact number of pieces. So it's like a puzzle game, but it's all real-time, so everybody's building. It's like a party puzzle real-time dexterity game, but it's all conceptualized and built around cool strange residential architecture in Tokyo, which Mm. is what I got inspired by. Cool. People thought it was a unique thing to have a clean architectural building game and i think that's why i really felt i wanted to keep making games at this point because i was questioning it before but this project really made me feel good about exploring my inner needs to just create something that i was inspired by and then like getting positive feedback from a community i didn't know and kickstarter was like the perfect catalyst for that and then i i realized that i could do something with this and I should keep pursuing it, even though I had four failures or whatever before. At this point, you've had five projects that you've run on Kickstarter, I think. What do you think the shift was with Poison Bottles where suddenly you you were able to not just find this community, but a community of people that like significantly put you over that funding goal line? 
the platform had a lot to do with it mm-hmm. because a lot of these people were just coming from being on the platform already. Mm-hmm. And I just happened to put something unique onto the platform mm-hmm. versus just putting something unique on my website or out in the world and having people come and find it randomly. Mm-hmm. But once those people found it, then there were more open lines of communication. And I was like emailing and talking to these people. They were very interested in what I was doing. It mm-hmm. wasn't just like they were casually buying this as an extra thing. They were like engaged with it. And that's like a really cool, unique thing about using Kickstarter is that the people that are supporting these projects are like passionate about them in the same way that you are. Mm-hmm. At the bottom of the page for Jutaku, you have a 10-card expansion for import-export uh, on the page for Jutaku. But that's, so was import-export already out in the world and just you hadn't run a Kickstarter project for it? If I remember, I was prepping for the import-export Kickstarter and I had mm. released a print and play that I had like sent out to a few people. Uh. I was saying, here's a 10-card expansion for the game that's coming out as a promo that only you get. Which, oh, okay. Yeah, people ended up getting angry about when I ran the real project, so I had to give it to everybody for free. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes. And see, then you, you start to realize real success on Kickstarter is when people are mad at you yeah. for getting free stuff. I must be very successful now because I get yelled at a lot. And so January 20th, 2017, you did launch Import-Export um, after doing that, you know, very savvy promo on Jutaku. Uh, so tell us about this project. Yes, this was a very exciting project for me because this was the project that told me I could do games instead of running my Etsy store anymore, which was a big deal for me. Oh, wow. Because I'd been running my Etsy store for like six or seven years. What were you selling in your Etsy store? I started out handmaking jewelry that I designed, and then I moved into wall decals that I did the illustrations for, and I was selling like clear phone cases. I would cut out uh, decals on a vinyl cutter, like put them on the inside, just random stuff that was like sort of sort of lifestyle goods, but mixed with like handmade jewelry and items. They weren't really like themed or branded super well together, but they were just like things I wanted to make. So when I ran import export for this first one, I was hoping, I remember I was hoping for $20,000. I was like, if I get $20,000, this is going to be like the biggest success ever. And uh, this will be the best catalyst to keep moving and growing in my games company. I I went to bed, I woke up, hit the launch button, and I was so tired because I've been working on the campaign for like a week that I passed out for like four hours and woke up again. And I think I had like $23,000 or something. And I was like, whoa, whoa, it was crazy. Mm-hmm. I went to, I clicked a button, went to bed and woke up a few hours later and I had $23,000 in backers. It was great. Uh, and then that campaign was going very smoothly the first week until everybody started freaking out about the fact that I had an exclusive backing section limited to a hundred backers where they got some ex- uh, three cards that were exclusive to that pledge level. Three gameplay cards mm-hmm. out of 150 mm-hmm. that were exclusive to that pledge level. And I I was in a storm. <laughs> I, was in, I was in a deep storm of cards. They were flying around my head and people were yelling. I had to reformat the whole project uh, oh my because people were getting very angry. And people were leaving and people were yelling at other people in the comments. And I thought, you know what, let's just fix this as quick as possible. I didn't know that these being exclusive or whatever was such a big deal. So we'll just give something extra to the people who did Mm -hmm. the Make 100 level. And so I made custom artwork and gave extra components of that artwork to the people in that pledge level and gave everybody else the opportunity to buy everything together in one of the lower pledge levels. And then things went pretty smoothly from there. And I think that like sat really well with my audience because they were glad that I listened to them mm-hmm. when they were all yelling and screaming about things. <laughs> How many comments are on that project? 371. So there's some, yeah, it's an interesting jump. It's a kind of order of magnitude jump in comments, which is probably, based on what you're saying, fueled by the mm-hmm. controversy. Uh, also, this was uh, the first project that Jordan Draper had staff picked. Just oh. Staff picked. Yeah. I remember this project being live. I remember looking at this project being live and thinking it was cool. Yay. Thanks, Uh, Luke. We talk about people who tell us that, you know, they built their careers on Kickstarter or something like that. But, you know, you're a really interesting example of of someone who's done it and where it has not been one just instant breakout success Mm -hmm. or also just not this smooth, like obvious trajectory toward Mm -hmm. superstardom. Mm-hmm. Um, where there's been uh, reversals and setbacks and questionable decisions. Whenever I'm talking to people who want to run a Kickstarter and they are asking me for advice on their first campaign, I always tell them just like set the lowest goal possible and be okay if you fail and then do it again. And I think 
a lot of those people like see some of my recent projects and they're like, whoa, you did so much. And there's got to be like a formula of success for this or something. I'm like, well, no, you have to be okay with wanting it enough to keep going and trying over and over again, because people don't know about all these failures we just talked about when they look at my new projects. So Mm -hmm. just start failing everyone. That's my advice. That's good advice. And so your failure, though, has led you to the definitive edition. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. This revelatory project, you said, the project that that made you realize you could make a living creating games. 1,015 backers, $70,246 pledged on Kickstarter. What was the goal for that project? Do you remember? It was 15000 I think. 15, so kind of minimum order quantity, mm-hmm. bill of goods stuff. Definitive edition. Where did that end up? Closed at 181,000, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 181,000, yeah. From 2,385 backers, so more than double the backers, uh, more than double the money, two years later. Yeah, it's actually not been that long when I think about it, but it feels like it's been forever because <laughs> I've made a lot of stuff in, in between. Is there anything you could point to that you could say, like, this is a determining factor in, uh, in you know, the, this geometric growth? I don't even know if that's the right term, geometric. Is it arithmetical, exponential? It's not exponential. Arithmetical. <laughs> I think arithmetical is probably the right one. Cool. Okay. You nailed it. Yeah. What's a factor? I mean, perseverance and being willing to like adapt and grow. Those are the big things. Yeah. But also engaging with your audience. I don't know. Some people don't answer all their comments or talk to people that say things, but I've literally responded to every comment I've ever gotten on a Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. I haven't missed any. So fail and talk to people about it. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's about it. Yeah, I think that's... Unless, do you have any more questions for Jordan? What's your Duncan order? Well, I screwed up today. should have just said, give me what Mr. Crane got. Master Crane. But instead, <laughs> uh, I got a power thing and little hash browns mm. and a pumpkin iced tea. Mm. Iced coffee, sorry. Pumpkin iced coffee. The pumpkins, the pumpkins have started? The pumpkins are here. Oh, they're they're shows. Okay. Trader Joe's has pumpkin stuff too. Pumpkins. I've talked to a lot of creators who tell me how useful failure can be in the learning process and learning what they want to make, learning what the market wants, learning just about themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, I'm always interested in talking about it. I mean, exponential path, or I'm sorry, arithmetical path <laughs> to um, nailed it. Success is is great, but. Uh, it's usually a, a lot more nuanced. Um, Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. All right. Great. Let's go fail. <laughs> <Woo>! <laughs> yes. Yay! Let's go fail. I love failing. <laughs> All right.